sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. And welcome to my study. Please come in and have a seat. All the uh, books here surrounding you are used to research our show. And this uh, individual here to my right, along with managing domestic duties, serves as our reader for any passages that will be directly quoted from uh, these books. Her name is Mrs. Carswell. Hello. So we'll be continuing from our last episode on the gin, focusing more on the uh, spirit-in-a-bottle motif uh, making its way into the West. Which is why you've been pulling things out and rearranging everything. Not everything. I just moved two things to my desk. I recognize the fish, but not the ship in the bottle. Why is that out? Well, uh, Mrs. Carswell and I were having a discussion after the last show, and I insisted that... I had in my possession two specimens of spirits in bottles, which she didn't believe. And that disgusting fish is some kind of ghost fish? Yes, it's called that. It's a preserved cave fish from a cave in the Ozarks. They call them ghost fish there. It's so white, almost transparent. Yes, they lose their pigment and vision in the dark. Look how tiny the eyes are. They're... Dead little pinpricks. And the way it floats, upended like that. So dead and hopeless. I'm sure he had a good life in the dark. And the ship in the bottle. Let me guess. It's a ghost ship. And there's a whole crew of tiny ghosts inside. Well, yes, I had wanted to say that. Uh, It's a replica of the famous Flying Dutchman. How can you have a replica of something mythical? I think we're done talking about these. You didn't pull out the bottle that really does seem haunted. What? Which? I guess it's a decanter. Almost more figurine than a bottle. Figurine of what? Some kind of derelict or hobo. Oh, that one from the 40s, the drunk on the lamppost with the music box. Yes, it will just start playing at random times when I'm in the room by myself. Well, let's add it to the collection then. Bring it over to my desk. I hate to touch it. I hate even dusting around it. Please, just bring it over. (sighs) See? Just when I barely touch it. Well, now we have all our bottled ghosts joining us for the show. That seems sad. A person should have real friends, not liquor bottles. Well, where are your friends, then? I have my bees. Uh, I know, yes. The bees. I I didn't mean to be cruel. Would you like to bring in your bee jar? I don't like being humored. Why don't we just start? Okay. Uh, So, episode 51, 
Bottled spirits, imps, devils, ghosts. I am your host, Al Reidenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, explores the intertwining of horror and folklore in a historical context. I started the show as a way to further explore this area of intersection after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. Bone and Sickle only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors. Our rewards have been uh, restructured a bit recently and now include a short bonus episode for supporters. Along with other rewards you've heard mentioned in the past, and a couple new ones, I'll have more about all that at the end of the episode. The name of the spirit that possessed her was Pazuzu, an Assyrian demon traditionally known as the king of the evil spirits of the air. While the 1977 film Exorcist II, The Heretic, is absolutely ridiculous, Richard Burton speaks the truth here. The demon that possesses Reagan in these films is an ancient Mesopotamian spirit of the southwestern wind thought to bring drought, famine, storms, and all manner of ill fortune. I'm beginning with Pazuzu because he's related to something I'd wanted to include in our previous episode on the djinn. The figure in the film, an enlarged copy of a small Pazuzu sculpture in the Louvre, has uh, something in common with a figure art historians call a winged genie. Pazuzu's arrangement of four wings, two pointing upward, two downward, is uh, typical of the uh, winged genies found in Assyrian reliefs. There's no definitive connection here, but many scholars assume such figures represent earlier figures borrowed into Islamic mythology as jinn. As a wind spirit, I think Pazuzu would approve of what you're hearing now. It's the sound of a wind harp, a recording from a 1972 album called Song from a Hill, which consists entirely of recordings of a 30-foot Aeolian harp constructed on a hilltop in Chelsea, Vermont. The uh, normal Aeolian harp, which might sit in an open window, is simply a number of strings strung over a sound chamber. The wind creates the music purely out of harmonics from the vibrating strings. Aeolian harps existed in ancient Greece and India and China, but were popularized in the West in the 1650s in a book by the uh, German Jesuit Athanasius Kircher. As a particularly fitting symbol of uh, divine inspiration, they became something of a fixation for the Romantic poets, uh, Coleridge and Shelley, and others uh, mentioned them frequently in their work. I mentioned Aeolian harps because they're a namesake of the Greek god of winds, Aeolus who appears in the Odyssey in a scene related to our topic. Uh, to help his ship on the way, Aeolus makes a gift to Odysseus of a bag of wind, one which is imprudently torn open by his sailors, who believe it to be filled with gold and silver. As if this uh, disappointment weren't enough, the winds they release blow them back to Aeolus's island. With Homer writing around 800 BC, this could be a prototype for our bottled spirits motif. The wind here being understood as uh, supernatural servants of Aeolus, 
and uh, bags and bottles weren't so different in a world where wineskins would be uh, the practical uh, traveler's version of glass bottles. They're simply leather bottles, after all, and the kind figuring into our next story, one which returns us to King Solomon. It comes from the Testament of Solomon, one of several medieval and Renaissance magical texts attributed to the king, others being the key of Solomon and the even more notorious lesser key of Solomon. Its uh, main topic is Solomon's interaction with the demons he enslaves to construct the temple, but it offers a variation on this story that we heard in our last episode. Solomon again receives a ring that gives him mastery over the demons that will build his temple, but then the story shifts to the king sending a servant on a mission, which later figures into the temple construction narrative. Solomon commands the servant, Go away into Arabia to the place in which the evil spirit blows, and there take the leathern flask and the signet ring in front of the mouth of the flask, and hold them towards the blast of the spirit. And when the flask is blown out, thou wilt understand that the demon is in it. Then hastily tie up the mouth of the flask and seal it securely with the seal ring and lay it carefully on the camel and bring it me hither. In Jerusalem, Solomon is set about imprisoning other demons in jars, but in the process receives a prophecy that Jerusalem will fall to the Persians and Chaldeans and the conquerors will break open these jars, loosing the demons. With construction nearing its end, the servant returns from Arabia with the flask. The author, that is, as Solomon, writes, The flask stood up and walked around some seven steps, and then fell on its mouth, and did homage to me. There remains a large cornerstone, too heavy to be lifted, but Solomon recognizes in this a task for the demon in the flask. I laid stress on him, and the leathern flask became as if depleted of air, and I placed it under the stone, and the spirit girded himself up, and lifted it up top of the flask, and the flask went up the steps, carrying the stone, and laid it down at the entrance of the temple. References to Solomon confining the jinn in bottles, often explicitly said to be sealed with the imprint of his ring, are all over the Islamic tales such as those found in the Arabian Nights. Long before this collection, or any of the medieval magical texts were compiled, however, the 4th century Greek-Egyptian alchemist and Gnostic Zosimos of Panopolis already is mentioning Solomon taking this action, and the possibility of such bottles being adapted to alchemical use. Zosimus also alludes to an abyss in Jerusalem as a repository of these bottles. From around the same period, the uh, Gnostic Nahimadi texts mention seven water pots, which confined Solomon's demons and lay abandoned in the temple. And it also mentions them being opened, Pandora-style, by the Romans when they take the city, uh, prefiguring the incident with the uh, conquering Persians and Chaldeans in the Testament of Solomon. By the Middle Ages, various texts elaborated on this theme. The text Vinculum Spiritum, or Bound Spirits, describes Solomon discovering a technique whereby he captured three million evil spirits in a bottle of black glass. Among these, 72 infernal kings headed by the demon Belial. 
1583, Dutch physician and occultist Johannes Weir, in his Pseudomonarchia Demonum, writes, Solomon gathered them together with their legions in a brazen vessel, where were enclosed among all the legions seventy-two kings, of whom the chief was Bileth, the second was Belial, the third Asmodeus. He alludes also to a a deep lake or hole, this time in Babylon, into which the vessel was cast, adding, But the Babylonians, wondering at the matter, suggested that they should find therein a great quantity of treasure, and therefore, with one consent, went down into the lake and uncovered and broke the vessel, out of which immediately flew the captive devils. By 1665, the Italian Inquisitor's Handbook, known as the Sacred Arsenal, mentions the possibility of witches possessing demons in rings, mirrors, medals, ampules. And to have a devil in the ampule even became an Italian expression, meaning to be endowed with a special, perhaps even supernatural knowledge resembling that of Solomon. By 1641, the motif had entered European literature via Spain, uh, presumably thanks to the uh, Moorish influence. Luis Vélez de Guevara's uh, satirical novel Diablo Cogiello, or The Limping Devil, describes a student in Madrid freeing the devil Asmodeus from a bottle discovered in a magician's garret workshop. Hilarity ensues as the two fly over the city and the devil reveals the private misdeeds and miseries concealed beneath the rooftops of Madrid's upstanding citizens. French writer Alain René Lesage, who may have had an editorial hand in the Arabian Nights compilation, adapted Govera's story for French audiences in 1707 as Le Diable Boiteau, the lame devil, sometimes rendered in English as the devil on two sticks, thanks to the uh, crutches employed by Asmodeus in the story. At least this was the title used in the 1794 English theatrical adaptation by Samuel Foote, Foote was uh, well-known for his wit and provocations and as a playwright and performer, and devised this play as a sort of uh, vehicle for his return to the stage after breaking his leg in a riding accident, playing the limping devil himself, of course. The lameness attributed to Asmodeus, by the way, was uh, attributed by Lesage to his uh, falling from the sky after battling another demon. But it may also be related to iconography depicting him with the uh, unmatched foot, which is common to devils, usually a hoof replacing the foot. Uh, the best-known illustration of the demon from the 1818 Dictionnaire Afanal, uh, Infernal Dictionary, makes it a webbed foot, though sometimes a rooster's claw is also mentioned. Asmodeus is uh, more playful than wicked in these stories, as he and his student companion observe human behavior, and sometimes meddling in romantic relationships along the way, like a Cupid-type figure. A uh, preoccupation with such matters is likely related to a uh, Western demonological tradition, assigning him particular dominion over lust, as he's characterized, for instance, in the uh, 1486 uh, Witch Hunter's Manual Malleus Maleficarum. Eventually, the devil-in-a-bottle motif made its way all the way to the British Isles. In County Cork, Ireland, near the town of Mallow, a site known as Bottle Hill, 
takes its name from one such story. The legend of Mike Purcell, who makes a Jack and the Beanstalk style trade at the site of this hill. The cow he was to sell at market, he swaps for a bottle offered by a strange little man described in Thomas Croker's 1826 book, Fairy Legends and Traditions of the South of Ireland, as... A little man. You'd almost call him a dwarf. <laughs> he had a bit of an old, wrinkled, yellow face, for all the world like a dried cauliflower. Only he had a sharp little nose, and red eyes, and white hair. This odd fellow convinces Mick that the bottle will quickly show its worth, and gives him the instructions to simply place it on a table and say, Bottle, do your duty. Arriving home, he finds his wife understandably furious at this exchange. That is, until these instructions are followed and these words are uttered. And at this... Two tiny little fellows rose like light from the bottle and in an instant covered the table with dishes and plates of gold and silver full of the finest food. The couple's sudden wealth stirs the curiosity of their landlord, who demands to know its source, which Mick reveals. So wealthy now that he has no need for the bottle, Mick gives it to the landlord in exchange for the farm and house he now occupies. But Mick's financial planning skills aren't what they might be, and his fortunes dwindle again to nothing but a single cow. Which he returns to the hill where he meets the little man again and trades this cow for another bottle. But this time, when he utters those magic words... In a twinkling, two great stout men with big cudgels emerged from the bottle and beat poor Mick and his wife and all his family before they went in again. Recovering from this, Mick hatches a scheme. He brings the bottle to his old landlord, who is now fabulously enriched by the first bottle and happens to be throwing a lavish party, and... Mick set the bottle on the floor and uttered the words. In a moment, the landlord was tumbled on the floor. Ladies and gentlemen, servants and all were running and roaring and sprawling and kicking and shrieking. Stop those two devils, Mick Purcell, or I'll have you hanged. They will never stop, said Mick, until I get my own bottle back. The landlord immediately returns the bottle, the imps disappear within, and the couple goes on to enjoy a life of wealth even greater than before. In the highlands of Sutherland, Scotland, there is a sea cave regarded as an entrance to the underworld. Its strange name, Smooth Cave, is believed to derive from a Norse word for whole. It's associated with the first lord of the Mackay clan of Ray, Donald Mackay, known as Lord Ray or the Wizard of Ray. Along with sorcery, he's said to have been a robber and kidnapper who tortured his victims in the cave, leaving them chained within to drown as tides rose to fill the cavern. Several tales tell of the devil unsuccessfully attempting to claim the soul of his servant in one, the wizard's dog enters an underground passage in the cave where the Dark One lays in wait, but a sulfurous explosion greets the dog and alerts the wizard who flees just in time. 
In another story, McKay is almost within the devil's grasp when the dawn breaks and Satan and his two witch companions flee to the cavern's roof, leaving three holes that can be seen today. Yet another describes the sorcerer as lacking a shadow because the devil has snatched it away in an attempt to claim his prize. But I'm mentioning the wizard because of another tale, which has him discovering a small wooden cask in an innermost recess of the cave. When he pulls a plug in the cask, a tiny man emerges, growing suddenly into a menacing giant. The wizard acts nonplussed, telling the giant what would really impress him would be to see his gargantuan form fit back into that tiny little cask he came from. And the giant takes the bait, disappearing into the cask, which the wizard quickly recorks. A similar trick is pulled across the Atlantic in Iceland in the tale The Wizards of Westman Islands, which I find in the 1864 book Icelandic Legends by John Arneson. The entity to be trapped in this case is something called Ascending, a sort of spirit double serving the purpose of a familiar. It usually assumes a human form, but when it's not needed, it's kept by sorcerers in a liquid form, usually in a bottle, but some stories substitute a hollow bone that may be sealed and corked. Our uh, story begins with 18 sorcerers retreating during the Black Death to a refuge on the Westman Islands. After some time, they wish to know if it would be safe to return and send an unnamed man to gather information. He's warned that if he does not return by Christmas Day, they will dispatch Ascending to kill him. On the mainland, the man finds uh, all the town is deserted, except for one woman who, in her loneliness, begs him to stay. Ignoring the sorcerer's warnings, he remains there too long, up to Christmas Day, and is overtaken by a trance-like lethargy, in which he remotely observes the approach of the murderous Ascending. Unable to rouse him, the woman waits nervously by his bed. When she had sat there a little while longer, she saw brownish vapor enter the house through the open door. It glided softly towards her, and standing still before her, took the figure of a man. But before the sending can fulfill his deadly mission, the woman pulls the same sly trick, daring the creature to become as small as possible. The sending assumes the form of a tiny fly, which he swoops up in a hollow bone and then corks. All is well till New Year's Day, when the man senses a second sending on its way. The woman rushes him from her home to a meadow, where she lifts a concealed stone slab, revealing a subterranean passage. After walking for a long time in darkness, greater than that of the blackest night, they came to a cavern which was dimly lighted with some fat burning in a human skull. Near this light, in a mean and wretched bed, lay an old man of the most horrible aspect. His eyes were red as blood, and his mouth reached from ear to ear, and as for his nose, no words can tell its length and color. The old man snatches the bone from the woman and... Without more ado, the old fellow took the cork out of the bone and out crept the fly, whom he patted and stroked, and to whom he said, Go now, 
receive all the sendings from the wizards on the Westman Islands and swallow them. Immediately, with a loud roar like thunder, the fly flew from the cavern, and when it came to the upper world, behold, it became so large that one jaw reached up to the heavens and the other touched the earth. And when not only one sending, but two or three came, it swallowed them all down, and so the islander was saved from the malice of his companions. The Brothers Grimm, in their collection of fairy tales, offer a variation on this theme in The Spirit in the Glass Bottle. It begins with a poor woodcutter who's saved money to send his son to the university. But when funds run out, the son returns and offers to help his father at his work. Out chopping wood, they stop for lunch, and the student wanders off and notices a giant ancient oak. While gazing at the tree, he hears a voice calling him from among the tree's roots. The student began to scrape about beneath the tree, searching among the roots, until at last he found a glass bottle in the opening. Lifting it up, he held it against the light and then saw something shaped like a frog jumping up and down inside. When the creature demands to be released, the young man uncorks the bottle, and the creature swells into a giant, declaring that he will reward his rescuer by breaking his neck. But the young man is quick thinking and tricks the spirit back into the bottle by challenging him to become small. Once trapped like this, the spirit, who happens to be named Mercurius, offers a, a fabulous reward for his release. When the young man complies, Now you shall have your reward, he said, handing the student a little rag that looked just like a small bandage. He said, If you rub a wound with one end, it will heal. And if you rub steel or iron with the other end, it will turn into silver. The rag proves useful in a few other incidents and the story won't go into, and ultimately generates the wealth, allowing the young man to return to school, where, aided by the magic bandage, he becomes a great physician. Okay, so we're back to that dirty black spider or whatever it is in the bottle. I'll buy him. That's simple. Now, does that solve it? Not by a long shot. Remember, it will keep you rich as long as you live. But remember, too, if you do not sell it for less than you paid for it before you die, your soul will surely rot in hell for eternity. That is a 1974 CBS Radio Mystery Theater adaptation of Robert Louis Stevenson's 1891 story, The Bottle Imp. It's uh, also served as the basis for several films and opera and uh, even a uh, standard magician's trick. So the story, a uh, down-on-his-luck islander named Keawe purchases a bottle containing an all-but-invisible entity that can grant any wish one has. But there are caveats, as we've heard. There's the hellfire that awaits anyone who dies with the bottle in his possession, the need to sell it for a price less than it was acquired, and the impossibility of getting rid of this thing by any means, as it is indestructible, and will physically return to the owner if he attempts to discard it rather than sell it as stipulated. 
After acquiring this bottle, Keawe's first wish for a fancy mansion is fulfilled at a cost. His uncle and cousin are killed in a terrible boating accident, but leave Keawe the necessary funds through an inheritance. Suddenly incredibly wealthy, and at the same time fearful that the bottle may indeed have been crafted in hell, as the seller declared, he sells it to a friend with the appropriate warnings. But when he later contracts leprosy, he looks to the lost bottle for a miraculous cure, tracing it with some difficulty to the current owner, who, though willing to sell, has acquired the bottle at the cost of two cents, meaning Keawe must pay one penny and will be unable to sell it for a price any lower. Out of simple desperation, he buys the bottle anyway, and while he's cured of leprosy, he becomes despondent, contemplating his fate, at least until his wife, Kokua, suggests sailing to Tahiti, where coinage includes the centime worth only a fifth of one penny. But the superstitious Tahitians refuse to consider the bottle, so Kokua resolves to secretly bribe a visiting sailor to buy the cursed object for four centimes, promising to buy it back for three, which of course leaves her in the unenviable position of having to sell it for two, which of course makes it unsellable. Thankfully, the drunken sailor refuses to sell it back. Undaunted by the prospect of hell, and eager for the bottle's financial rewards, he declares, I reckon I'm going anyway. Though the Hawaiian setting and other elements are certainly his own, Stevenson admits in a foreword to the story that his tale was inspired by an 1828 play, The Bottle Imp, a melodramatic romance in two acts. But this is hardly the first iteration of this uh, plot device. German romantic writer Friedrich de la Motte Fouquet, whose uh, folkloric novels serve as the basis for Anderson's Little Mermaid, and Dvorak's opera Rusalka, and even Wagner's Ring Cycle, has uh, made use of this story himself. It's in his novel Galgenmännlein, or that is, uh, Little Gallows Man. Galgenmännlein is one name for the mandrake plant, which in German folklore was said to grow under gallows, seated by bodily fluids spilling from the executed at the moment of death. Thanks to the root's tendency to resemble the human form, it was treated as a sort of sentient doll-like charm, which needed to be bathed and clothed, and if well-kept, would bring its owner good fortune. Fouquet's uh, little gallows man, however, is transformed into an actual devil, confined within a bottle, a malformed, grinning black creature that taunts the man who acquires it. The uh, conditional luck and misfortune, all the caveats that uh, Stevenson describes, are the same here, but they're not actually part of the folklore of the Mandrake. Instead, they're borrowed from an earlier German novel, a picaresque narrative about a woman named Courage or Courage, uh, written by Jakob von Grimmelhausen way back in 1670. The novel is called The Life of Courage, the Notorious Thief, Whore, and Vagabond, which revolves around the life of Courage, a camp follower and prostitute during the Thirty Years' War. I won't go into that story too much, you've got plenty there in the title. But um, one exception to Stevenson's rules uh, is that uh, courage is 
eventually able to destroy her bottle imp in an oven. This is not the case in Fouquet's story, which ends rather dramatically. We'll skip all the initial fortunes and the protagonist later attempts to rid himself of the bottle. But towards the end, uh, the protagonist, Reichardt, he's called, has uh, purchased the bottle back for the smallest denomination then circulating, which is translated as a farthing. And so he's reduced to begging, not for one of money, but to acquire an old half-farthing coin that might allow him to sell the bottle. And he's ridiculed as... That crazy half-farthing man. Despairing, he wanders out to a lonely spot where he encounters... A tall, black, wild-looking horse bearing on its back a man of gigantic figure in a blood-red, gorgeous dress. The stranger already knows of the bottled imp that he wants to sell and he wishes to acquire it himself. And he says there's a prince who might coin some half-farthing pieces should he feel indebted to the man. And he has a plan for this. He foretells an encounter the prince will have with a dangerous beast and challenges Reichardt to be on hand at the predicted time to defeat the beast and thereby gain his favor. After acquiring the coins, he's to meet the stranger to finally sell the bottle at a site known as the Black Fountain. And so Reichardt hides himself at the spot where the prince will be attacked. As he watches, the prince, out on a hunt, is set upon by something that resembled a horrible and furious ape bearing huge horns on its head. Summoning his courage, Reichardt charges the beast, which is surprisingly eager to retreat, leaping from a cliff into the sea. The grateful prince, though surprised at such an odd request, agrees to have some of these coins struck. Half farthings now in hand, Reichardt now inquired for the black fountain, but the children in the tavern who heard him ran off in a fright. Despite the place's evil reputation as a site visited only by witches, Reichardt ventures into the mouth of a cave said to be its entrance, and emerges on the other side to find the horseman washing at a fountain. But the evil stream was dark as ink, and made everything it touched as black as itself. Fear not, young man, said the grisly figure. This is one of the ceremonies I am obliged to observe, to please the devil. Having already sold his soul to the devil and having nothing to lose and everything to gain by acquiring the cursed object, he hands Reichardt a farthing, receives the bottle and a half farthing in change. The devil, he explains, has been a miserly master. So not only will he enjoy all the gold the bottle can generate, but he's eager to cheat hell of another soul, declaring, that will make the old dragon mad with rage. You may have been wondering if I'm going to talk about witch bottles. It's a bit questionable how well they fit our theme, but they seem to be a subject of some interest, so witch bottles. These are bottles hidden in walls or buried under or around a house to counteract any potential witchcraft attacks. Though it wasn't really believed that the witches would be entrapped within them, they might function to capture the evil influence of a hostile spell. More commonly, however, it seems they were simply placed there to do harm against any witch attempting to torment the occupants. 
A couple hundred of these have turned up in England, often discovered in the walls of old homes during remodeling. But as many as a dozen have also been found in the United States. They first mentioned in the 17th century and were in use through the 19th century, and certainly a bit later in rural areas, and of course they've been revived by neo-pagans. Pins or nails are almost a universal content of witch bottles, as is something from the uh, feared witch's own body, sometimes uh, hair or nail clippings. Um, Blood could be used, but this would be harder to get. So the most common substance was urine. The reason for this, and the very specific physical threat directed at the witch by these devices, is made clear in a text from 1681 by English philosopher and clergyman Joseph Glanville. Stop the urine of the witch, close up in a bottle, and put into it three nails, pins, or needles with a little white salt, keeping the urine always warm. If you let it remain long in the bottle, it will endanger the witch's life, for I have found by experience that they will be grievously tormented, making their water with great difficulty. While this seems a common intent, not every bottle was constructed with this in mind. Nails and pins might be intended to simply impale and hold the witch's evil. Rosemary was sometimes included as a witch repellent. Wine, which would drown the witch, was sometimes used, not a thread to bind the witch. And other substances with less clear intent have been found in these bottles. Uh, Coins, vinegar, ashes, uh, feather shells, stones, etc. While uh, glass bottles were the common choice after the mid-18th century, before this a type of stoneware jug was typical, particularly a type called uh, Bellarmines or uh, Bartman jugs. Originally from Germany, where Bartman means beard man, this described a decorative element affixed to these bottles at the neck, that is, uh, bearded faces, sort of small pressed relief of a face. Uh, Perhaps these uh, glowering, bearded presences were also thought to offer a bit of intimidation to the witch. These uh, talismans were created by other witches, by healers, cunning folk, or simply by the homeowner. Sometimes it was said they needed to be heated to achieve their effect, either boiled or thrown into a fire, which might not go well. In 1804, a British cunning man named John Hepworth accidentally killed his client while an iron witch bottle being boiled exploded. (laughs) Glanville, whom we heard from a moment ago, reported on a case in which a woman was tormented by a... A thing in the shape of a bird that would flutter near to her face. Shortly after having the witch bottle created to repel these attacks, she emerged from her home with a lamentable outcry that they had killed her husband. It seems the bottle had been more than effective, but that the witch, sending the fluttering spirit, had been her husband. There's also an ancient ancestor of the witch bottle that I want to mention as it brings us back to where we started. Dating from as early as the 6th century and found throughout the Middle East, these are terracotta bowls called incantation bowls or demon trap bowls. Bowls are buried under homes placed face downward to catch demons that might assail the occupants. A characteristic feature is spiraling incantation texts believed to draw in and hold the demon. Another element sometimes found is the Seal of Solomon, which as we know is a tried and true method of holding demons in 
any sort of container. And now, to end our show, some modern spirits in bottles. In rural St. Johns County, there's a little shed that's considered haunted because inside, John Deese says he's storing ghosts. This was actually caught in Decatur County, Georgia oh. from an old farmhouse. Deese sells these, ghosts in a bottle. You can buy them online. Deese tells us he contracts with professional ghost catchers around the country. And they'll go in and catch them from, you know, haunted establishments, uh, cars, hotels, maybe even graveyards. This report from Florida is from 2010, which was a very good year for selling bottled ghosts. That same year, a New Zealand woman by the name of uh, A.V. Woodbury put two bottled ghosts up for sale on the site Trade Me. The two spirits, she said, had been tormenting her and were removed by an exorcist from her home and contained in small bottles of holy water. According to Woodbury, the holy water, which oddly was dyed the color of Windex, dulls the spirit's energy. The troublesome spirits were identified in a Ouija board session as a man who'd lived in Woodbury's home in the 1920s and a uh, disruptive little girl. After garnering some 200,000 page views, they sold for a price of $2,000, which an e-cigarette company, for some reason, decided to uh, shell out. I'm not sure about the ethics of buying someone's soul, but if the spirit you've captured is a demon, I suppose you avoid that issue, as is the case with uh, a woman going by the name Sarah Sinister, a uh, paranormal investigator, demonologist, intuitive, etc., etc., uh, who is uh, currently selling bottled demons she's caught on Etsy. We recently did some entity removals, and we actually have two demon bottles. This one here is a wraith, and we have another one that is an amplifier demon. She does remind buyers that purchasing a demon online does come with certain risks. Um, we've had a lot of things happen here at the house since we brought them home, um, even with them contained. Perhaps this is what put Mr. Deese of Florida out of business, especially when customers uh, open those bottles. Some people open the bottle, they say they don't get any results, and it's just fun conversation piece. And then others say, well, there's strange stuff happening in my house. Where's my car keys? Where's the remote to the TV? Well, who hasn't had their keys disappear after opening a bottle or two? Which reminds me of our little friend. I don't think this bottle has any ghosts in it, but there is plenty of gin. I hope everyone's been enjoying our show and that you might have the opportunity to share episodes with friends or even better to leave a review wherever you listen. As I mentioned at the top of the show, these episodes only keep coming out because of the support of our Patreon subscribers. When you donate, you are contributing towards the more than 100 hours I end up putting into each show. Think about that, 100 hours. Uh, subscriptions begin at $1 a month and can be discontinued at any time. Those uh, subscribing at the $4 level or higher now receive a short bonus episode called Marvelous and Rare, consisting of extracts read from some of the uh, curious old books around the Bone and Sickle Library. 
We've also added a bonicycle candle featuring the skeletal St. Notburga, as well as uh, two different mystery kits, each one with unique ingredients. And we still offer my Krampus book and the show Soundscapes you hear in the background. Do want to thank our new patrons, uh, Keziah Walker, uh, Michael Bathrick, uh, Arn Pelto, I think that's a Finnish name, uh, George Lightfoot, Ben Mool, and Emily. And thank you to Mark Tripp for upping his uh, pledge level. If you haven't yet, you might want to visit our website, boatandsickle.com. There you'll find links to our Patreon, Facebook group, Twitter, and Instagram, along with the show notes with links to materials in the program. This show is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer. Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects and writing related to death and culture you can track at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much for listening. Here's to you.